morning we are taking a small break from our series in Ephesians and because it is the season of Easter we're going to be focusing on Palm Sunday. It is, it is the, the day where 2,000 years ago our Lord rode into Jerusalem and was proclaimed as King. The day is, of course, a bit mixed, I suppose. It's the best way to describe it. A week later, there would be another triumph. You have the triumphal entry, and a week later, you have another triumph, the triumph of the resurrection. And and that triumph was obviously something that was permanent with cosmic and eternal implications for all of us, for all of creation, because Jesus conquered the grave. But the timeline between one Sunday and the following Sunday is very eventful, isn't it? It seems so short in the the space of it all. How can just this very short time have implications so tremendous for all of history, for for all of us? for all of creation. But there's a lot that happens in between both Sundays. Up until now, Jesus has been guarded about his identity as as Messiah to the public, preferring to identify himself as the Son of Man. Otherwise, the political implications would be such that he would not be able to complete his intended ministry of teaching, of, of healing, proclaiming the kingdom. But now the ministry is all but complete, almost complete. He now moves to fulfill the messianic prophecies and like the director of an orchestra, he's totally Rather than a victim, he's totally of control, in control of the situation. Palm Sunday is prophesied in the Old Testament, and so it is part of God's plan all along. But this does not imply that it is all mechanical, indifferent, detached, detached of any feelings, and you just have to go through the motions, as it were. It is a mixture of joy and pain because Jesus knows, and looking back 2,000 years, we also know, we know how it all ends up, what is going to happen. On the one hand, the enthusiasm of the crowds is contagious and thoroughly deserves. It is spontaneous, and you just want to be there cheering with the crowds as the Saviour walks in or rides on a donkey. The King is coming into the holy city, Hosanna. Our salvation is here. But on the other hand, we see Jesus. What was he feeling? Well, he's actually filled with pain. He accepts and encourages, on the one hand he accepts and encourages the, the, the acclamation of the crowds, the celebration. But instead of lifting his hands in, in victory, 
like a general marching victoriously to his city, he's more subdued. And when Jerusalem comes into sight, the holy city, as you go over the ridge, it's there, it's, it's glorious, it's marvellous. The holy city, Zion. As he looks at the city, rather than being overwhelmed by the celebration, he's overwhelmed by something else. He begins to weep, he begins to cry. Not for himself, but for the city, for its inhabitants. He can see it. He can see what's going to happen. Jesus knew that shortly after the people would keep quiet within days, the people, the people would be keeping quiet. And by Friday, by Friday, they would be yelling for him to be crucified. So I want to draw some important lessons, life lessons for us from this well-known passage. And the title, The Lord Needs It, it comes from the words of Jesus, his instructions to his disciples, which they then repeated. The Lord needs it. We need to ask ourselves, what does the Lord need? What does the Lord need from us? So first of all, the Lord needs our obedience. Verses 28 to 31. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it to me. And by the way, if, if anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. So 2,000 years ago, it was time for Jesus to enter Jerusalem as king. This is, in our series on King David, we, we pictured this, right? Happening years, a thousand years before, when his forefather David left the city, entered the city, See, so he arranges for, for a donkey, similar to what King David, his forefather, had used at the coronation of Solomon. It fulfilled prophecy. This is the prophecy in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The gospel writers tell us that Jesus needs a very particular donkey, not just any donkey. One that's been unridden, unbroken. It wasn't a case of, guys, find me a donkey, any donkey. I don't care. His instructions were very particular, very specific and direct. 
And the disciples didn't question Jesus. Why do we need a donkey? You've never ridden a donkey before. Yeah, I know when you, your mum took you in her womb to Bethlehem, yeah, you probably were in a donkey then, but why now? I didn't question. They just, they just went and did what they were told. We're also to obey Jesus when he tells us to do something. Just because we don't understand the reasons, the ex- we don't have the explanations, we don't know what the result, what the purpose is, just do it. Just because you don't understand is no reason to refuse to budge when it is time to obey. Sometimes the explanations will come later, sometimes they won't. And and notice the instructions the disciples are given to say should their assignment be questioned. The disciples need to also calm the owners, relax. The Lord needs it. They didn't even say relax. Why are you doing this? The Lord needs it. Those words should be enough. And not just the disciples were obedient. So was the donkey. And, And I don't know if you've ever worked with a donkey. You've seen them in a farm. They're not the best looking animals in this world. I've got to be honest, I know there are people who love donkeys, but come on, man. Next to a stallion, they're, they're pretty ugly, come on. And donkeys have, have a problem in their character. They are notoriously stubborn. They... they you see yanking the donkey and sometimes because it's a load, sometimes because donkeys fear things. They, they actually warn the farmers many times when there is danger about. So they're a bit like dogs in that, in that regard. So they, 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 re, they refuse to move. They refuse to survive. They say, that's it. I've had enough. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I don't know what you're thinking. Get someone else, you know. Especially a donkey. Now, this is already, I'm talking about that behaviour as a donkey that's already been broken, is used to carrying loads, is used to do all this stuff. Domesticated in a way. This one hasn't been. This one's never been ridden, not been broken, not domesticated. Yet, there doesn't seem to be any resistance. This one would carry the most valuable cargo that any animal had ever carried or will ever carry. Ever. Maybe later the owners would put up a sign in front, in front of their house. Donkey for rental. Jesus rode this donkey. 
came and come and take a picture with a donkey. Famous donkey. Special donkey. Think about it. Why no resistance? Why compliance? Why just, you know, why no stubbornness? Well, this animal was carrying its own maker. In Isaiah, we read, the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. So animals, animals understand, animals obey, they, they know what it's about, they, they, they know how this thing works, but people, my people don't understand. Why is it so hard when even animals, even donkeys... In many ways, the story of Palm Sunday begins with this wonderful word. The Lord needs it. This, this expression, this, this declaration is met with instant permission, instant obedience, instant compliance. How about us? Have you ever asked yourself, I know I have, does the Lord really need me? Doesn't it, does the Lord mean, I mean, doesn't it sound arrogant, somewhat arrogant, boastful, even presumptuous to say the Lord needs me? What, the Lord doesn't need anything, he doesn't need anyone, he, the Lord God is, the sovereign Lord is self-contained, he is everything in himself, within himself, within the Trinity, There is everything, self-contained, doesn't need anybody else. Why would the Lord need me? And yet, think about it. He has chosen us, loved us, saved us, called us, equipped us, put his spirit in us just so we can sit down and listen to Christian music. That's why he did it. He's good, right? That's how good he is. I love God. He knows my comfort. He knows what it's about. I love that hammock underneath a mango tree. Just take it easy, man. What did we read in Ephesians? What What did we see in Ephesians? He prepared good work for us to do. He saved us, he called us, he chose us. For what? For a reason. For a reason. Not to relax. For work. For work that he has prepared for us to do beforehand. And, and to be used by him, therefore, is, is, has to be an amazing privilege. I didn't say it's going to be painless. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say it's going to be comfortable. You already found that out. I'm not going to even say that it's, it's going to be joyful many times. It's not going to feel like that. But it is a privilege. So, 
let me ask you, are the words, the Lord needs it, are they enough for you to obey? Are they enough? Okay, so the Lord needs our obedience. What else does he need? Well, he needs our possessions, verses 32 to 34. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. Surprise, surprise. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. It might surprise you to know that in Jesus' day, a donkey was one of the most valuable possessions an ordinary middle-class family could have. It was like your ute, your car, your mode of transport. Not everybody had one. Yet in preparation for his triumphal entry, Jesus told his disciples to grab one outside a certain house and bring it to him. Only explanation to the owner, the Lord needs it. No further explaining or reasoning behind the request. There isn't a letter. There isn't a permission note. There isn't a contract. You agree when you lease this vehicle that you will bring it back in one piece as you have found it, clean and all buffed. The donkey ain't never going to look so good. Wonder if, look, I just thought of it. Wonder if you, if you would give someone similar access to your nice car. That's why I have ugly cars, by the way. I wonder if you would give access to someone for your nice car. They walk into your house, grab your keys, head to your garage. And when you ask them, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. Huh? What does that mean? More like you need it, but... Oh, the Lord needs it. Oh, the Lord, right. As creator of the universe, Christ was entitled to everything the owner had. Everything. Everything, family, wife, house, everything, he simply chose to take the donkey. Okay, I can have the rest. I can keep the rest for a while anyway. If that's all he asks, fine, take it. it because you see, in, in an attempt to, to, to seek an explanation for this remarkable compliance, some... Theologians and, and teachers and pastors and readers and, and others, when they look at this passage, they say, okay, this fellow was Jesus' friend. They must have been Bethany, that's where Lazarus and the family lived. It, it was Lazarus, even though it doesn't... They knew each other, it was all prearranged beforehand. They texted each other, man, it's okay if I borrow your donkey for a while. Yes, plausible, but the text doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. 
at all. And even though it makes us feel uncomfortable, this is, this is real. This is real. Many times in our lives, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. And we say, oh, great, the Lord has blessed me. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. That's what Job found out. We like the given. We don't like the taken away. Good, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Lord, just continue to give, please. That's my prayer. But don't take away. Please don't. It's mine. And, and if you are going to take away, I need an explanation, please. Give me a reason, give me a purpose. Why are you taking this away? But here, there's no explanation. And Job found out through all those chapters... In Job, there's no explanation why God did that, is there? There's questions. Now, if God needed something you had, how much explanation would he need to give you before you let it go of something that you hold dearly? What is the item in your life that Christ asked for? It could be your money, it could be your time, it could be a talent, it could be your house, it could be your family, even your life. Maybe you feel that what you have is not worth very much to God. But he can take the most ordinary thing and use it to advance his kingdom. He was watching people give the temple and a widow went and threw a coin. In the scheme of things, in the scheme of God's kingdom, that coin wasn't really the widow's might. It really wasn't worth all that much. And yet Jesus said she, she gave more than everybody else. Let me give you some examples, right? So just so you understand this. When Jesus needed a platform to preach, a pulpit, a platform to preach from, Jesus was preaching, remember the episode, Jesus was preaching on the shores of the Sea of Galilee at the beginning of his ministry. And he says that Jesus climbed into the boat belonging to Simon Peter and said to him, let me use your boat, push it off a short distance away from the shore so I can speak to the crowd. Luke 5.3 Remember when he needed to feed the multitude? A small boy comes, seems to be the only one who was ready. He brought his packed lunch. He had bread, had fish. And with that, Jesus was able to feed 5,000 just men and the rest. 10, 15, 20,000 people. Remember when Jesus needed a tomb for his son? What did he do? He borrowed the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The tomb never been used. It was vacant, freshly cut. Now it was occupied and then it became the empty tomb from which, the famous empty tomb from which that would prove his resurrection. So in many ways Jesus 
Yes, Jesus doesn't need what we have because he's already perfect and complete in himself in every way. He's all things in all things. He didn't need Peter's boat because later he would show them that he could actually walk on water. Yes, Jesus, instead of the boat, he could have actually just stood on the water and everybody watched him. He could have done that. He didn't need the boy's lunch. He managed to feed manna from heaven to his people for 40 years in the desert without a lunchbox. How did he do that? He can do all things on his own, but he chooses to work alongside his creatures, using them and what they have for his glory. That's his choice. That's his prerogative, and that's what he wants to do. When, if you're a believer, and most of you here are, and if you're listening, most of you will be. If you're a believer, you should know that conversion, coming to Christ, giving a life to Christ, involves everything. He takes over. But as we know, conversion is an event, but it's also a process. A process that God continues to work. We call it regeneration. But Martin Luther, the reformer, actually said, We need three conversions, he said. It's the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. As you evaluate your lives, you must be ready and willing for Jesus to claim use of what we think is our possessions, but they're actually his. Since he is the master, we need to remember that they don't belong to us anyway, but to him. We are, for the time being, we are stewards, we are managers, we are administrators, for a certain amount of time, for a while. But one day... One day, the Bible tells us we will have to give account before him for what he has given us. And we're all going to have to give account. You, me, all of us. What else does the Lord need? The Lord needs our praise, verses 35 to 40. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As this, the, the, the band of disciples, the crowd begins to grow, it comes over the, the, the ridge and begins to descend into the, the Kidron Valley between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. There's the Kidron Valley, at the bottom of which is Gethsemane. And, and they, they sing praise. They sing praise, Psalm 118, although in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, only one verse is quoted. 
Lord save us, which means Hosanna. Lord grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118 verses 25 to 26. The people knew what this means. The Pharisees knew what this means. And the Pharisees, they are increasingly restless. They, they cannot continue to, they can no longer tolerate what is going on here. In their minds, something must be done and they're determined to stop Jesus. He's now openly claiming messiahship. He's this open acknowledgement of his kingship, they, they knew what it meant. They knew the story of David. They knew the prophecies. And it's because Jesus, in some ways, he's poking the bear. This is what precipitates his death. Jesus is not crucified for his good works. He is killed for his claim to kingship. But for now, they are, they are demanding that Jesus silence his disciples. And his response, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Bang. In saying this, Jesus indicates that the people's acclamations should be encouraged. It should not be suppressed. Because if the people in Jerusalem did not express praise... It would be appropriate, more than appropriate, for inanimate objects, even inanimate objects, to fill the void. And the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and for him. It's just everything. All creation was made for God's glory. Everything in creation declares his praise. And, and the idea of rocks crying out in praise to the Lord is, yes, it is poetic. But it, it is a startling image, is it not? It's, to me, it's more than poetic. Because throughout the scriptures, there are, there are similar passages that present all of nature, including the inanimate objects. Rocks are inanimate, dirt and stuff like that. And then you have animals and trees. They are living objects, living things that God had created. Isaiah said, You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. You remember the chorus, right? That we used to sing. Now the perfect Eden that God had created out of nothingness was not meant to be like this. We know that. Sin and evil cause mankind to fall away from God. Consequently, the earth has a use-by date. It will be destroyed and remade in the future, as the Bible says. As a result, all of creation, in Romans 8, all of creation yearns 
for that return to God's first design. All of creation awaits that. But even so, even with the fall, it was created from the start to be this wordless testimony to the presence and the power of its creator. Consequently, we are left with no excuse but to recognise God as our creator and as our saviour. Although most in our world do not, creation does. The world itself is evidence for God. It is there. It is there. And of all creation, out of all of creation, both living and inanimate, only we were created in God's image. Only humans bear his image. So how much more are we supposed to be praising God, created to worshipping, created to giving thanks, All that we see and experience is is this living testimony to the fact that God is alive and he's actively working in our world. His word is truth. He's speaking to us. He's with us. He's empowering us. You cannot simply, in the confronted with all of this, just simply be quiet and keep silent because it's incorrect or it's against the law. You can't. Fine, shoot me, I don't care. If you kill me, the stones are going to cry out. Because all of this is, is God's. Let's bring it back a bit as I bring this to a conclusion. Let me conclude by telling you a true story, um, the story of William Borden. In 1904, more than 100 years ago, young William Borden graduated from high school in the US. At at one time, the, the family business was the largest US producer of dairy and pasta products in the US. So he was worth quite a, quite a lot of dough. As heir to the Borden family fortune, he was already very wealthy and his future just opened with so many possibilities, all before him. But after taking a trip around the world, he decided to be a missionary. He wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. He went to Yale and after seeing what the situation in Yale It was a lot worse than what it is now, by the way. He started a small prayer group with just some some guys. So he started a small prayer group with some students. By the time he was a senior, Yale had 1,300 students. 1,000 students at Yale were involved in Bible study groups after something that started like that, so simply. But his outreach ministry went beyond the Yale campus. He also cared for the widows and orphans 
outside, the disabled, and, and, and reached out to the drunks, the alcoholics outside, and founded the Yale Hope Mission. But his heart, his heart, God was pulling him to reach out the Muslim Kanzu people in China. His heart was set on that. He, these were the people he was going to go to, to reach as a missionary. So fixing his eyes on his goal, his, his resolve never wavered. Upon graduation from, from Yale, Borden turned down high-paying job offers. In the back of his Bible, he wrote two more words, no retreats. No retreat. He did his postgraduate studies at, Prist- at Princeton uh, Seminary and when he finished, he sailed for China. But because he had to learn the language, he stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. And while there, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, William Borden was dead at the age of 25. And prior to his death, Borden wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. And underneath the words, no reserves, no retreats, he wrote, no regrets. No regrets. In your thinking, in my thinking, I'm sure with his friends, his family, his relos, his mum and dad, everybody be saying, what a waste. What a waste. That's in our economy, but not in God's economy. Remember that word? The law of the household? God's economy? Don't we, as human beings, don't we deserve an explanation why God did this? Why did he allow this to happen? He is God. He was going to do good work. He was going to go out to reach these people. He's already done. He was good. He had all these skills. Everything was before him. He could have made such a difference in our world. It doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that? No, you see... We need to understand this. When it comes to life, when it comes to death, when it comes to our possessions, when it comes to our praise, it should be enough for us to know that the Lord needs it. If he comes calling for our lives, the lives of our children, comes calling for our possession, whatever it is, remember the phrase, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. Amen.